I'm here with Tom Dunn. He is the co-chair of the Department of Communications Media at St. John Paul, the great university near San Diego. Is that right? That's correct. Or in Escondido, California, which is in the northern part of San Diego County. So I got a degree in television and film production back in uh, 1989, uh, California State University, Long Beach. Uh, from there, I went and worked at in the TV show Entertainment Tonight. It was up on the Paramount Studio lot. I uh, worked there for a little over a year, and then uh, from there went to Comcast, which is now the largest cable cable company in the U.S., and we did quite a bit of production um, out of Comcast. We did a lot of local stuff, but we also um, worked with a lot of national clients. One of the clients we worked a lot with when they first started coming on the air was Court TV, so Courtroom Television Network, and that ended up uh, spending a lot of time covering a lot of big trials up in the Los Angeles area. There was uh, quite a few at that at that time in the, in the early to mid-90s, uh, Rodney King and O.J. Simpson, one thing I don't understand, you know, I remember back in the day, Judge Wapner and all that, and now these guys are making like $17 million a year, Judge Judy or something. How is that possible that they could make so much money off the legal system? <laughs> it's viewers and advertising. And it's up to the judge's discretion just to invite people in and televise it? Yeah. So the the judge pretty much has control of his courtroom. So anytime there was a trial of interest from Court TV's standpoint, they would have to approach the judge and ask for permission to bring cameras and recording equipment into the into the courtroom. And he kind of oversaw the procedure, um, whether he'd allow you know one camera or uh, multiple cameras if it was a big precedent. So you went into the field. Um, I know last night you mentioned you had a kind of a conversion experience with your wife. Uh, mm -hmm. What was it like, though, going into that field without a real strong faith? Was And this is the late 80s, I guess. Yeah, late 80s, early 90s. Um, you know, I guess I was I was just kind of blessed and, and guided along the way because I was never really put into a situation that really challenged me morally or, or from a faith standpoint. I was kind of surrounded by some, some pretty pretty good guys and, and, and gals that, uh, that I worked with. So no terrible experiences or anything like that? Uh. No, not, you know, there was a couple of guys that uh, I remember a guy working with, and he said, oh, you know, I've got an opportunity to go to go work on, you know, this questionable type of programming um, at a time when I was freelancing. He says, yeah, you know, I go up to the, up to the valley, which is a big, uh, uh, a big location for a lot of the, a lot of the porn industry. And he says, yeah, we can get some, you can get some really good money working on these shows. And it's like, you know, let me know if you you want to you tag along sometime, and mm -hmm. and you know that was obviously never of, of any interest of of mine, uh, even before I had a you know that a much stronger faith foundation. And tell us about that that conversion experience you had. Well, I was, I'm a cradle Catholic, and I kind of like to refer to myself as what I thought was a stereotypical Catholic. You know, I went to, I went to church every every Sunday, uh, knew kind of the basic tenets of my faith, and and practiced what I would consider the basics. Uh, when I met the, the woman who is now my wife, she was a very strong uh, evangelical Protestant, and she, she questioned me on a lot of things. She had actually been, uh, she'd been um, born and baptized a Catholic, and then her parents fell away. And so she 
was kind of indoctrinated with some of the false teachings that her mom um, had interpreted. And so she asked me some of these questions, and it's like, well, I'm not, not quite sure the answer of these. I've never had never been asked any of these questions or never been, in a sense, challenged on my faith. And it, it kind of, you know, initially kind of pushed me back, and, and then it kind of drove me to kind of, well, I need to know the answers to this if, if I'm being challenged on this. And we had gotten to a point with our, in our relationship that we realized that um, this was going to have to be something to, to reconcile if we were to possibly get, to get engaged and, get to, and become married. And so we both kind of we, we kind of made this this uh, uh, agreement that okay I'd look into her side of the of the faith a little bit she was uh, practicing Lutheran at the time, and she said oh, okay I'll look into uh, the Catholic Church, um, but she was pretty confident that wasn't wasn't going to take much for to to rope me over to her side, and obviously guided by the Holy Spirit, there was a series of talks that was in our in our diocese, and I said you know. There's this guy I've heard about, and his name is Tim Staples, and I've heard he does some pretty good talks. How would you like to, to we can start off and go into these, uh, there were, uh, was a five-week five, five week course on apologetics. And so she said, oh, yeah, sure, okay, I'll go to this, and went to the first class together, and it was just amazing, I just eye-opening. And by the second class, she was just, all of her questions that she thought she had the answer for when she asked me, now she, almost like the tables had turned, because she was now questioning what she had been brought to understand of the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. And this, this guy, Tim Staples, had a biblical explanation for almost every uh, preconceived notion that she had been brought up with. And that kind of, that really rocked her world. She realized, whoa, wait a second, this, the, the truth is really here. And she knew in her heart that she had to follow the truth. And all of a sudden, she was being made aware of what the truth really is. And so that was, it was actually quite, quite challenging and tough on her initially. And that just kind of lit, lit the fire for me because I'd never been exposed to any kind of apologetics or defense of the faith, and I wasn't really aware that there was this great attack against the Catholic faith out there. And it just kind of snowballed the whole learning and process for me and the desire to, to know so much more about my faith and, and really about the Mass and, and, and all of that so she quickly entered the church then? Yeah, yeah, she quickly entered the church. We, we got into an RCA program right away. I said we because I was so interested. I, just, I went to all the classes with her. Uh, I wanted to, to learn and to listen and to be taught as, as much as I could. So, yeah, she went into the uh, RCA program. She was uh, received into the church on you know, the vigil, Easter, Easter vigil. And the very following Saturday, we got married. And both of you were raised in California? Yeah, we're both born and raised in California. And tell us about uh, the work you did in television, specifically. What was your job? My job was, well, I've done quite a bit of, of, of things in television. Um, probably my strength and forte is in the hands-on production, both the camera work, lighting, and editing. But I've also done a lot of directing of some uh, multi-camera programming, sports some television talk shows, uh, multi-camera things. I would think sports would be very intense. <laughs> sports can be very intense. Yeah, there's a once that you know, I've done a lot of basketball. Once the you know the the tip-off goes in, things happen. It's everything is very very fast-paced. And, and the world in general, I would think, is a very stress-filled type of work, isn't it? It can be very stress-filled. Yeah. 
Now, what brought you over to uh, John Paul the Great University? Well, after my wife and I got married and we really started diving together into our faith, I started having these thoughts of, well, you know, seeing the media world a little differently and seeing a lot of the immoral stuff that was being shown on television that was being portrayed in the movies and decided, you know what, i got to get out of this. You know, guilt by association. I don't want to be bringing up and raising a family with having, you know, one foot, trying to have one foot in, in, in a faith-filled environment and another fi- foot in, in an environment that, um, you know, is very questionable. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to get out of the, the media world and, you know, I'm going to try to find some other occupation and something else to do. And so, you know, one day I'd be full-on trying to find something new to do, and the next day a little voice in the back of your head is going, no, you need to stay in the media world. You were given gifts and talents. You need to use them in the world of media. There's a reason why you're here. And so it was, it was a struggle for a couple of years of, of trying to reconcile, you know, what to do. And when I found out about the university, I read a couple of articles about this new school that was starting up in the San Diego area and was able to contact the gentleman who was one of the founders, Dr. Derry Conley, who's now the president of the university, contacted him and said, hey, this is who I am. These are, these are some of my skills, just kind of interested to find out what the university is looking for, what your needs are when you get started. Are you looking for something specific um, in instructors? And he responded back really quickly because that was a kind of a hole that the university had at the time. They didn't have anybody that was kind of guiding them or leading them on the production end, on the technology end. I said, yeah, you know, if you're ever down in San Diego, let's let's meet. And at the time, I was living in Orange County, and I said, no, oh, I can be there in an hour and a half. When, when do you want to meet? And we met a few days later, and he told me about the vision and the dreams of the university, what the needs were. Um, there was no position yet. They were still a year, almost a year, a little over a year away from from offering their first class. And uh, I said, you know, I'm not, I can't give you a job. I can't promise you anything, but this is a need we have. You know, I have to let uh, you know let God answer that in your heart what you want to do um, at the time I was we were in a transition phase ourselves we were planning on selling our house and and moving out of the the Orange County area and I was going to you know, kind of jump back into the freelance production world um, possibly start my own little production company and start doing stuff on my own and we just kind of turned the ship a little bit and and headed down to San Diego and uh, I did jump back into the freelance world for a couple of years as um, primarily focused on getting the university up and running, figuring out what, you know, what the budgetary needs would be, where we can get some money, what equipment we're going to need, um, how to set up a, a media lab, um, you know, how we're going to grow that from, as the student body grows and, and all that. And you did that freelance for the the university? Yeah, I did that for about a year on my own with the university, and then when we opened up the the school in September of 2000, that'd be 2006, I taught one class. So the first year I taught one class every quarter. And then the next year I was able to teach two classes a quarter because we now had a freshman class and a sophomore class. And so it kind of transitioned less and less doing freelance production and more full-time into working at the university. And like this year, what have you been teaching? So this year, um, this quarter currently, I teach a fundamentals of production and a fundamentals of post-production class. That's a freshman class where the students learn how to use the cameras, how to use the lights and microphones, how to take the, the footage they shoot and bring it into. And we use Adobe Premiere, so how to edit with that. Um, a lot of the basic understandings of how to put the story together from an editing standpoint. I'm um, also teaching an advanced cinematography class. 
Um, next quarter, I will teach those same two production fundamentals of production class again for the freshmen since we have uh, too many freshmen to have them all in one class. And then I'll also be teaching a production sound class. Tell us about editing. Uh, you, you mentioned it to me yesterday about uh, how there is a lot of editing done. I mean, a lot of jumps from, and you watch a modern cable show, and there's just a lot of activity. How do you, how, how do you, what is the philosophy behind that to put that together in a compelling way? Well, the philosophy is really storytelling. I mean, to be a good editor, you've got to be a good storyteller. And if we're talking about just a narrative story, you got to know the story. You got to know what's the characters um, experiencing and where they're trying to go with the story, with with their character arc. And the more you know the story, the better you know the story, the easier you can put that together. But editing is really it's the ability to take footage that's you know captured out time outside of time and space and bring that together and creates a nice storyline. Because when we're shooting a project, you know, we might take a couple of hours to shoot what it'll end up being 30 seconds of footage on screen. Um, so we need to be able to, uh, you know, almost like working with a jigsaw puzzle. You've got all these little pieces, and you've got to figure out which ones are going to go together and which ones connect better. Sometimes pieces will kind of fit together, but not really. Um, but oftentimes there's two or three or four different ways to put those pieces together and tell Similar stories, sometimes it's a completely different story, depending upon how those pieces line up. And you got to be willing, I guess, to let a lot of stuff go. Maybe some great scenes you think is great, but it's not really advancing the ball. Yeah, that's, that's often a challenge for, especially for students, when they've, they've written their own little story, and they've shot it, and they've edited it, and they know it took us three hours to get this wonderful shot. This is going in the story, yeah. when really it's not helping advance the story. Um, you know, a lot of uh, professional editors talk about not wanting to to be present on scene uh, uh, on the set when it's shot. Um, one, uh, I remember a story from one of Steven Spielberg's editors talking about editing Jaws when she realized this fake shark when it was on screen for more than you know two or three seconds, it looked like a fake shark and it didn't scare anybody. Where Steven Spielberg said, you know, it took us three days to get this shark to work properly in the water and all the, 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 the pain that we went through. I want to see that on screen as long as I can, where it wasn't really supporting the story. Um, and the, in the end, the editor, because the editor wasn't recalling those, you know, the challenges and, and everything they went through on set, was able to deliver a better, a better end product and use that, the, the tools of editing and that shark to scare the audience as opposed to to looking like a, a big fake thing floating in the water. So it's it's key that you know exactly where you want the story to go, who the characters are, so it's not kind of figure it out in the middle of it or it doesn't come to you or it's not intuition. Hopefully not. Sometimes it does. Sometimes there's there's footage when you're when you're putting a story together, there's footage you see on your screen that may not have originally been there written on, on the script, but the performance of the actors bring it out in a different way. Um, kind of going back to um, Steven Spielberg and some of the work he's done, another great story that his editor, um, Michael Kahn, when he was editing Schindler's List, there's a very, very powerful scene when the Oscar Schindler character is, is, is discussing uh, <clears throat> a certain part of the, of the story with 
with the uh, Ben Kingsley uh, character, and it's Spielberg when he saw that scene on on in the editor's room. You know, he was he talked about he teared up. So that emotion wasn't there on the script. The emotion wasn't there when they shot that, mm-hmm. but the editor was able to bring together more uh, more of the story, more of the emotional aspect through his craft than originally was there. So there's always the the opportunity to take the story to the next level, even in the world of editing. Yeah, it seems like to make a production, a film of something, you, you just need everybody doing their best, right? <laughs> you do, and that's why, you know, there's so so few really good films out there. Um, when you start making them, you realize, wow, it's so it's so challenging, and there's so much that has to go into it, and everybody's really got to be at the top of their game to deliver the best that they can uh, if we want to get a great product in the, in the end. What are some of your favorite films to watch, maybe from that editing production standpoint? You know, Leaving aside favorite. the morals, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can bring up a number of films, but, but oftentimes... Even editors and cinematographers will, will will mention this when you say, "Well, what's great editing?" Um, oftentimes, if you're actually if you're noticing the editing and paying attention to it, then it's not great editing. Then it's gotten in the way of the storytelling. So, you know, Schindler's List is, is one of my all-time favorites. It's it's just a fantastic example of great storytelling, great acting, great cinematography, great great editing. But you don't really notice any of that. You get so involved and wrapped up in the characters and what's going on on screen that uh, you're immer- immersed in the story, and three hours go by, and you don't realize it. And then you know that was that was great storytelling, that was great editing, because I didn't I didn't even know it was there. Do you ever notice uh, with Spielberg? Sometimes I feel like he kind of gets drunk from having too many scenes and too many kind of moments. And I always thought like Jaws is kind of very linear. It it moves forward more than some of his his later stuff that seems to have a lot of great visual stuff and he's obviously extremely talented and can put together these great scenes but sometimes for me it doesn't always flow yeah sometimes filmmakers can get kind of get caught up and trapped in in the spectacle of of a movie whether it's too much special effects um, or maybe the story's not really there and they've got to try to rely on some other aspect of movie making to keep that audience engaged do you think um like that there is you can make a story out of almost anything, like even like a kind of a normal life character or something, if it's well done. Because there's something just interesting about people, period, you know, why they are, who they are, what they do. Is that true, or do you really need like a, a great story every time? <laughs> no, you can make you can make an everyday incident um, compelling and, and interesting. It's one of the exercises that my freshmen have to do in the fundamentals of production class. Their first project is a little exercise that I call Open the Box. And they're very limited in what they can do. No dialogue. Um, we want to see a person entering a room. This is the example I give them. And we actually do a, we walk through and actually shoot one in class, and then they do one on their own. You know, somebody walks into class. The class is empty. There's a box sitting on the table. What do they do? They walk up to the box. They're kind of curious. They sit down. Nothing's happened. They're waiting for someone to walk in the classroom. They're supposed to meet. They're looking at their watch, and there's this box here, and it keeps drawing their attention to them. And and eventually, the curiosity peaks enough that they look inside of the box and then there's a message from 
this this individual they were supposed to meet and said, sorry, I can't meet with you. Here's a gift card for, for In-N-Out Burgers. You know, have lunch on me. Sorry, I missed it. <laughs> so, you know, how you can make that an interesting story yeah. if you piece it together properly, if you have the right camera angles, if it's not just, here's a wide shot of a guy walking into a room. That can get very boring. But, but how can you visually tell this to hook in the audience to create that that moment of curiosity. Well, what is in the box? Is he going to look in the box? He's going to, oh wait, no, he's not going to look in the box. Mm-hmm. He's going to look in the box. Oh, here comes somebody walking through the class. Is that the person he's waiting for? No. Why is he waiting for a person? And so we try to get the audience kind of wrapped up in the story and, and engaged in and associating with, with the character. Yeah, sometimes I, I think, I, I know this mistake is made. I make it all the time. Most of the time with pre it's like you try to do too much and and I noticed that with some of the great scenes to me that strike me, they're simple and it's clear what the message is. And I know we sometimes you talk to like a guy who's made something or analyzing a film or something, and he he's got all this. Or like the, you listen to the director's commentary on a DVD. Sometimes there's all this meaning in his mind connected with this scene that I just totally miss, and I think really wasn't there for an average viewer, you know, to pick up. Do you talk about that simplicity and and how that simplicity in conveying a message can be so powerful? Yeah, it can be very powerful. You know, today's audiences are very intelligent um, when they watch something. So they don't like to be told, this is what you're supposed to be watching. This is what this scene is supposed to be about. Um, They like to, in a sense, kind of be led in that direction. And I think there's a uh, a sense of fulfillment from an audience member being able to figure it out by themselves. Yeah. It's like, I know what, what they're trying to do with yeah. this scene. Um, so when when the director you know, is hitting him on the head and, and trying to, here's what I'm trying to tell you, Get yeah. take this away from it. Yeah. Uh, I think sometimes the audience, uh, you know, they might feel insulted. They might feel it's like, I know where you're going. You don't have to hit me on the head. Over, hit me over the head with this. Yeah. I know sometimes I feel like, is it was well, it just gimmicks then? Is it just a matter of doing a surprising thing or just the unexpected thing? I, I know like the stories of O. Henry, you know, the short stories, he would have all these surprise endings and after reading a book on it, you know, by the end of it I could just I knew it was gonna happen because it was just the unexpected. And then it, it lost its appeal to me. So talk about maybe gimmick and then like a real story that's because life is always creative and unexpected, and certainly our our faith life, God seems to love to work in unexpected ways. The Holy Spirit moves us, in, and that just seems to be a characteristic of all our lives. Yeah, it is, and I think that audiences want, you know, they want to go in a in a direction they haven't gone before. Uh, there's been so many stories told, and so that you know, a lot of most people have seen so many TV shows and movies that oftentimes is very predictable of where the story is going. Um, and you know, they say, oh, I've been there, done that, yeah, seen this yeah. before. But, oh, wait a second, now we're telling it from a different story. Oh, I wasn't anticipating that. Yeah. And there's often a, a much greater sense of fulfillment of, of being a part of the story when it kind of takes that twist and turn and goes a little bit different direction. Yeah, I heard a, um, a writer for one of the really popular cable shows that was known for a lot of plot twists and turns and everything. And he was describing the writing process, and they had like this this room filled with writers, and they would write stuff on like a three-by-five card and post things on a wall, you know, and connect all these different pieces. 
I mean, it just it sounded like just this incredible, savage pace, kind of intense, uh, putting together all these different ideas. He just needed all this brain power to come up with these stories every week. Is that like where the industry's at now? <laughs> well, that, that's very common in, in television writing. In television shows, they'll have a writer's room, and they'll have multiple writers involved, and they will you know, throw out ideas, and one of them will take them one way. Uh, maybe somebody's focused on the specific development of one or two of the characters in this, if it's an episodic show, uh, <clears throat> and where they're going to go. Uh, one, of the, one of the challenges there is they also have to realize that you know, this, these cast of characters aren't going to live in just a, you know, is it a movie, in a two-hour experience. They're going to live over season one, two, three, and four, so they've got to make sure that what we do today doesn't you know, negatively impact but can positively impact the story and where it's going to go in episode seven and then lead into season two and how that's going to build up something that we're going to hopefully have a hook to keep that audience engaged and bring them back for season three and, and so on. Have you seen in your work like particular gifts men would bring to this editing process and women? I know I listened to an interview one time with a French filmmaker or someone who commented on French film and he, he talked about this rise of women directors and their stories were much more centered on women and relationships and things and it sounded like you know he was talking about a real kind of advancement to, to, to movies and film have you seen that in your work maybe some things men would do well stereotypically in women stereotypically in the production environments men are typically the ones running the cameras and setting up the lights and, and doing the audio and some of the more technical stuff although we've got at least at, at the university We've had a, a, a number of female students that have been fantastic cinematographers and have gone on to do great stuff. Um, in the editing world, actually, some of our best editing students have been females. Um, you know, something about that ability to be very focused on intimate, detail-oriented aspects of, of putting anything together. Uh, as an editor, you're spending hours and hours in often a dark room with no windows, being able to, to stare at a screen and really fine-tune. It might be just a, you know, a short one-minute scene, but being able to spend three or four hours on that and getting the absolute best you can out of that. So it takes a, you know, it takes a certain personality. It takes a certain um, type of temperament to be able to work well in that environment. And, and at least at our school, as I mentioned, some of the best editors that I've seen come out of there have been females. Yeah, I was watching something that is real action-paced, kind of spy thriller thing. But it was kind of, to me, it felt kind of clunky, predictable, contrived plots. But it had like a lot of eye candy to it. But the thing that held me was like the relationship story to it between some of the characters. And it struck me just how important... I mean, all the money was probably going into the sets and all these action stuff. And you know, it seemed like we don't sometimes, you know, in the latest blockbuster, pay attention to the relationship part between the characters. Yeah, and that's so critical also in the, in, in the story. But, you know, that probably points to what I'm experiencing with our students. You know, f you know females often are, yeah, are, 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 are stronger from the relational standpoint. Where the guys, especially from the media side, you know, they want to blow stuff up. They want cars <laughs> to go fast and, and guns to shoot. Yeah. Where where the women are interested in the relationship and you know how to how to strengthen that, how to resolve a situation that they're in. Yeah. 
because um, if I look back at you know, a couple of years ago, we had an all-woman group of seniors put together their senior project, and it was a story about about a, a young girl who's always dreamed of going to Oxford University. She's a writer. She wants to be a writer, and she finally gets her opportunity. She gets accepted to Oxford, uh, but her father is showing early signs of Alzheimer's, so she's she's stuck in this in this struggle of do I go follow my dreams and go to school or do I stay at home and and experience my dad with what might be the last few years that he remembers mm-hmm. and so it's a very emotional story for for the the girl to go through and like I mentioned it was it was all all women that were the producers the directors the the editor um, they told a great story where the guy stories. We, you know, that same year, one of the guy stories was um, a World War II um, action story. Something I love to do, and I, I drive the brothers crazy with this. We're watching something, and I always have to say, when was this made? When, I always want to know, when was this made? And I always find that fascinating. I, you know, we watch all these American films, and to see how it reflects the culture. And I don't know why it's so interesting to me, but... Do you ever think about that, like the development and how it reflects culture, like a 70s film versus an 80s film versus a post-9-11 film? Yeah, we talk about that a little bit in some of our classes. Um, often we talk about the development of film and, and just what technology has, has enabled the filmmaker to do um, and how that has changed. You know, a class I used to teach, I used to show the ending scene of the Maltese Falcon and then compare that to the ending scene of you know, the Lord of the Rings, the Return of the King, and how they're so drastically different, where you've got this 1940s film that was completely story and dialogue driven, and you've got, you know, a modern film with all the special effects and CG, and how the endings are so different. But the technology, you know, back in the 40s wasn't there. We had these huge cameras that needed so much light to get an image that you couldn't move it around. You were stuck in the studio. Um, They were loud, so they, you know, you were limited in, in what you could do from a sound recording, from a lighting, and from camera. Now you've got these s- small cameras. You can put them on steady cams. You can green screen, you know, millions of people in the background. Uh, there's so much more you can do, and the filmmakers are are doing so much more. And I, I think too we, that Catholics can bring to this a, such a great drama. You know, our, our culture is like drunk on you know, on, on sex and violence as almost like the only stories you can tell. But we, you know, Catholics, and just salvation history, you know, has all these great themes of redemption and and our cooperation with God's grace or not, and, you know, the struggle we have in a divided heart and all this kind of stuff. Do you all talk about those themes and how that can make you a better movie maker or media guy? We talk about those themes, but we also talk about being truthful with story, um, the audience wants the truth. And if you look at, as you mentioned, salvation history, you know, story in a sense is kind of a tool that God has given us because throughout, especially the Old Testament, there's incidences where God communicates his truth through a story. You know, when, when David is, when Nathan, uh, you know, uh, confronts David and tells him, he doesn't come out and say, you did this terrible thing. He tells him a story about you know, the poor shepherd who's got one sheep and, and the other guy comes and steals it from it. And that gets David all worked up. You know, Nathan could have just come up, come right out and told David, you know, you sinned, you did a terrible thing. But he tells it to him in a story, and it's so much more powerful. Um, so God has used story. 
And I think to some degree, um, when we hear stories, we almost kind of put down our our defenses a little bit because I think there's that there's that sense that okay, we're going to be be telling something or be or hearing something that's truthful. We're not being preached at. at. So there's a great responsibility for a filmmaker to tell a truthful story. Um, That's where there's there's the potential, and, and there has been so much damage done through the media because so many of the stories that are told nowadays. We're not telling the truth. When we, when we show a dysfunctional family and project that as this is what a modern family is, that's not being truthful. When we talk about or we show relationships that are not based on, on the way God intended man and woman to live and how to come together in, in the union of marriage and what a true marriage is, but when we, we show that in, a, in an incorrect way on screen, or in a sense we're lying to our audiences. And there's a lot of power there. Um, because the audience, like I mentioned, I, I think we kind of put down our defenses, just like you know that natural law is kind of written into the back of our minds that we can all recognize it, whether or not we we know Jesus Himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you know the power of story. It's like okay, if I if I see something, if I'm told something, uh, to some degree, I'm going to accept that as the truth. So we've got to be very careful in in how we're 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 telling our stories and what what we're projecting on screen and that which they're always grounded in the truth. You know, I was struck by, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, we promoted it, I think it was called Gimme Shelter. It was the story of a, a, a homeless woman that was kind of thinking about abortion and she doesn't, she goes to a pregnancy home and and uh, and I they had like a famous actress in it and she really, um, that it was like a gritty film. You know, it showed like New Jersey homelessness and uh and i remember i was just struck by man i never see that i mean even sometimes like you see a movie that might have street people in it or something it's still kind of like uh stylized or and this one just had a grittiness that man it just seemed to communicate real life in a way that i i think i mean it surprised me you know that and i thought man we should see like the bicycle thief you know the italian film that showed the plight of the poor in a realistic way. And uh, I feel like that's kind of a Catholic call, right? Mm-hmm. It is. And a lot of our students are really interested in, in portraying their stories in that manner. They want, they want it to be truthful, not just in the story, but also in the setting and the experience the characters are going through. Well, thanks so much. I know you've got to catch a plane, so we'd probably get moving, but thank you. You're very welcome, Father. Thanks for, for listening. 